Today I'm going to consider this term enlightenment or, as I mentioned, my preferred translation, that of awakening, which is, I think, without question, one of the most um, confused ideas. The reason being that it seems to be used in a very wide range of meanings. Each school of Buddhism has its own particular take on what the Buddha's awakening entailed or consisted of. And this is not um, helped by a rather uncritical use of the term in much of the uh, Western or English language literature that is available to us on the subject. Part of the problem is that the term enlightenment in particular is extended without really much reflection to cover pretty much any spiritual or, or religious or mystical tradition so that we speak of enlightened masters in, <clears throat> in uh, Hinduism or Sufism or in Christian mysticism uh, or whatever it might be. <clears throat> and there seems to be very little uh, thought given as to what on earth we are talking about. It's not uncommon maybe you have been involved in such conversations yourselves, to earnestly discuss whether a particular teacher or particular monk or lama or roshi is enlightened or not, as though enlightenment was some kind of property that certain people possess and others most singularly lack. But I feel a far more interesting question, rather than asking whether X is enlightened or not, is to ask, enlightened about what? What are they enlightened about? What do we mean when we say enlightened? So often we use the term as though it somehow exists uh, sui generis um, in its own nature, irrespective of anything else. It's some sort of privileged uh, spiritual quality that um, is either there or not. But what are we or these people enlightened about? Now, the fact that we have these discussions, at least in the context of Buddhism, is in some sense rather odd because the Buddha gives a perfectly clear definition of what he means by awakening in his very first sermon. It's utterly unambiguous. And yet, I suspect that many of us um, are not even familiar with this definition. And so what I want to look at today is the first sermon 
I'm going to read it out, and then I'm going to focus on the passage where the Buddha explains what it meant for him to be awake. The first sermon is called A Turning the Wheel of Dhamma. And according to tradition, it was delivered in Sarnath, which is a town just outside Benares or Varanasi, some weeks or months, probably weeks, after the Buddha's experience of awakening in Bodhagaya. And the day before yesterday, I gave that passage where the Buddha gives, as it were, his first account of what it was he experienced at that moment. And he spoke of it as shifting from his from delight and um, attachment to a place and coming to discover what he calls this ground, the this-conditioned, conditioned arising. That's the, the first account the Buddha gives, but he doesn't actually use in that passage the word awakening. It's only when we come to the first sermon, which occurs after a period of hesitation and, and, uh, and perhaps even self-doubt that followed the initial experience, that he speaks explicitly of what it meant for him to have e- experienced a full awakening. So this is the text. <clears throat> This is what I heard. He was staying at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana and he addressed the group of five, five former companions in ascetic practice. One gone forth, in other words a renunciant, one gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Infatuation, which is vulgar, uncivilized, and meaningless. And mortification, which is painful, uncivilized, and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening, and release. It has eight branches. Appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, and concentrating. This is dukkha, suffering. Birth is painful, aging is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. 
this psychophysical condition is painful. This is craving. Craving is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is cessation, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path, the path with eight, with eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting and concentrating. Such is suffering. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is craving. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. There arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of these four noble truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. <clears throat> so, here's the Buddha in the very first sermon he gives, describing his awakening, his enlightenment, and he says very clearly, only when my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. That, at least in Buddhism, is what we mean by awakening. And I'm going to explain and unpack that because it's, as you might have noticed, not entirely simple. It's worth noting also what the Buddha does not say. There's nowhere in this text, as there was in the one I read out the other day, where the Buddha says, I have awoken to the truth. Nor is there a passage which says, I have 
awoken or become enlightened about the unconditioned or emptiness or the true nature of mind or any single thing. In fact, what is rather striking about this whole um, account is that he refuses to identify his awakening with the awakening to any one thing. In fact, he doesn't speak of the truth or the absolute truth or the ultimate truth, but he speaks of four truths. He almost seems to want to um, puncture that assumption we have that awakening or enlightenment is the experience of some kind of unity or oneness where all differentiation is dissolved into some kind of mystical vision of the one, which we might call God. And remember that that would have been very much the um, understanding of probably most people of his time. Enlightenment or liberation was understood by the Brahmins, by the priestly caste of India at that period, as the absorption of one's own true self, one's Atman, with the greater reality of Brahman or God, the absolute truth, this undifferentiated oneness of God, of which a tiny spark exists in each of us, and that enlightenment, although the, in the text don't actually use that word, they use the word liberation, is that of um, seeing through the fiction of being a body and a mind and recognizing that one's true nature is this um, pure consciousness or awareness that is identical to the greater reality of the divine. And that, I think, is an idea that runs right through uh, Vedanta, through Indian thought. It also reappears in, in different guises in later forms of Buddhism. And there are many parallels to it elsewhere in the world's mystical traditions. The Buddha's account of his awakening, though, seems to be a deliberate departure from that whole way of thinking, that whole way of seeing oneself and the world. So what does it mean then? What does it mean to say that only when my knowledge and vision was entirely clear about these four truths in these 12 ways did I claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. Not only four truths, in other words, four rather than one, also 12 aspects. He seems to delight in the teasing out of specifics, of complexity, 
rather than simplicity. So what are these 12 aspects of the four truths? Well, that's quite clear from the preceding passage where the Buddha, having listed the four truths, defined each one, suffering, craving, cessation, the path. He explains what they are. And then he says, such is suffering. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is craving. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. Now there we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve sentences. These are the twelve aspects of the four truths. So what does that mean? It means that each truth is to be recognized, it is to be performed, and it is to be accomplished. Now that sounds a bit odd. We don't normally think of truths as things to perform or accomplish. We tend to think of a truth as something we either know or we don't know. So here the Buddha's also challenging the assumption we have about the whole idea of truth. What he's doing, and this I feel is perhaps his most radical move, is he's understanding truth not as a propositional fact that can be affirmed or denied but he's understanding truth as a task as something to do in order to perform a task you first need to recognize what the task is then you need to get on with it to perform it and in the end, you need to accomplish and complete that task. The four truths are four tasks. They're four things that the Buddha is inviting us to do. So what is it that is specific, or what is the specific task that, we, that is implied in each truth. The first truth is dukkha. Dukkha, he says, can be fully known. So the task of the first noble truth is to fully know parinya, dukkha. We'll go into that. So the first truth is the task of recognizing, performing, and accomplishing the fully knowing suffering, to fully know suffering, to embrace 
suffering, if you wish. The second truth is the truth of craving. But craving implies a different kind of task. Craving is not something to be known, but it is something to be let go of. It's something to be dropped. Sometimes it's translated as relinquished. So the task regarding the first truth, to know suffering, then becomes or then leads to the task of letting go of grasping or craving. The third truth, which the Buddha calls the truth of cessation, specifically means the cessation of craving, the stopping of craving. And that is something not to be known specifically or let go of, but to be experienced for yourself. The word in Pali (coughs) literally means to see with your own eyes, which I think is quite close to our, in English, our, our word to experience something, to know it for yourself not just conceptually, but to really experientially understand what that is. And then the fourth truth, which is the Eightfold Path, which again teases the thing out into another set of actions, seeing, thinking, acting, speaking, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating... This path is a task. It's not something that's lying ahead waiting for us to walk along it. But it is a task in that this path has to be created and cultivated. The word is bhavana, which means literally it needs to be brought into being. It needs to be created. It needs to be formed that our practice is in a way the task of creating and sustaining a direction and a trajectory in our lives, in all aspects of our lives, not just our, our spiritual life, but also how we think, how we speak, how we act. This is all quite clear. Now what we have here is, as it were, a template or a paradigm for living a flourishing human life. And the Buddha's awakening, therefore, cannot in any sense be reduced to some sort of insight into some ultimate truth, but rather it's an awakening to the the fundamental tasks of a human person's life. And not just an awakening to those tasks, but the Buddha also claims that he has performed and accomplished those tasks. That he has fully known dukkha. That he has let go of craving that he has experienced the stopping of craving and that he has created and cultivated a path. 
Now, how does this connect with what we saw the day before yesterday when the Buddha describes what he discovered beneath the tree in Bodhagaya as the this conditioned, conditioned arising? What's the connection between conditioned arising and these four noble truths? If we go back to that passage, I think we get the clue. The Buddha says, I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. Now, what I think the Buddha does now is he translates that principle, conditioned arising, when this, ari- when this is, that arises. He translates that from a principle into a practice. In other words, the four truths are the first uh, step in translating the idea of this gives rise to that into a way of life so that when there is the fully knowing, when one fully knows dukkha, that gives rise to the letting go of craving. When one lets go of craving, that gives rise to the cessation of craving. And when there is the cessation of craving or grasping, that gives rise to the creation of a path. In other words, if we consider these four truths as tasks, we can see how each gives rise to the next. The the Buddha is describing in the four truths a sequence of actions that starts with one's embrace of suffering and culminates in the creation of a path, a way of life. Again, there's no sense here that the aim of this exercise is, let's say, nirvana. Nirvana, contrary to much popular opinion, is in fact only the third truth, the cessation of craving, that leads to the cultivation of a path. It seems that it's the path that is the goal in this approach. So let's go through these four and try to tease them out a little bit more in detail and try and get a sense of how this process works and, in particular, how that gives us a framework for pursuing the kind of meditation practice we're doing here. So we need to start with suffering. Now the word um, that we are translating as suffering is dukkha. And 
to be honest, it would be far better if we didn't have to translate it. There is no English word that captures the range of meanings uh, in the Pali Sanskrit word dukkha. It is true that in, in many contexts, dukkha does mean something like suffering but, or pain. But that, I think, is too narrow a reading. It might also be understood, and sometimes it in fact is translated, as something like unsatisfactoriness, which I think is again a slightly unsatisfactory translation. Incompleteness, the sense that something is somehow lacking, our life is not whole, is not somehow complete. It could mean also that um, our world is in somehow something we cannot ultimately rely upon. You see, the Buddha uses this word dukkha um, in the context of sabha sankara dukkha, which means all conditions are dukkha. All conditions, not just um, you know when I feel a bit of pain in my knee. But any contingent, conditioned, impermanent thing is in some sense dukkha. It's not something we can rely upon to, to gain the sort of, of peace and well-being that we yearn for. The world is such that it cannot be the ground for our well-being or at least not in any permanent way. And yet, if we look at how we often think and behave, that I think is, is often the assumption, maybe an unconscious or semi-conscious assumption, that if only we could get our life sorted out, then we'd be happy. And we see this, I think, and this is such a deeply embedded trait of human behavior. If I had the right partner or house or job or car or whatever it might be, then everything would be okay. I mean, just think of it in, in tiny little mundane situations. If only person X did not work in my office, then wouldn't it be wonderful? If only I didn't have this irritating pain in my lower back, then I'd be able to meditate without any difficulty at all. There's always this bit of grit in the oyster. There's, all, there's so often something not quite right. And if we could just resolve that, then we'd be in paradise. Now, of course, the people who understand this best in our society are advertising executives. And if you look at um, 
the advertising media, it's all based on this psychology. You're looking at a television. What the, advert- the advertisement is not going to do when it's trying to, let's say, sell you a jar of instant coffee is for 30 seconds display on the screen against a white background a jar of instant coffee with the text underneath saying, please buy this. <laughs> it wouldn't work be much cheaper, but it wouldn't work. So what we get instead is we get a delightful English country garden or the back of a house with a little table, a little beautifully wrought iron table, nice and white and pristine, sitting on which is a piece of bone china cup, a bone china cup filled with some beautiful black liquid beside which stands a jar of this instant coffee. Seated at the table, there is an impossibly beautiful woman and an impossibly handsome man who look terribly happy and dancing on this exquisite green lawn against this sunny background is a delightful little three-year-old girl. A golden Labrador bounces across the screen... (laughs) Now, you laugh, but when you go into the supermarket the next day for your shopping and you're wondering which jar of instant coffee to get, there's a fairly good chance, or statistically, that you're going to pick the one you just saw on the TV the other night. Now, of course, you're not really buying the coffee. You're buying the fantasy in which the coffee was wrapped And intellectually, we know this is all nonsense. But the advertising industry wouldn't be so successful if it didn't work. And it clearly does work. And one should not be fooled just because one is a spiritual person who does meditation that we are not somehow victims of it too. But deeper than that rather silly example, is, I think, a rather deep psychological or even existential truth that has to do with dukkha. This image seduces us because it, it offers the promise of some kind of completion and perfection. In this case, by buying some crappy instant coffee. And we see this process at work right throughout our lives, in our fantasies, in meditation. Very possibly a lot of it is about if only X was absent, I would be happy. Or if only I could get Y, then I'd be happy. So the Buddha is saying, look deeply into that. Fully know dukkha, fully know suffering doesn't mean just to become acutely aware of the pain in your knee. That may be one aspect of it, but it's to see the whole uh, way in which we 
live our lives, define ourselves, behave in such a manner that we keep thinking that perfection is just round the corner if we could only get it right. And to recognize that we just don't live in that kind of world, that kind of reality. And again, we find with this whole idea of of conditioned arising, the idea of impermanence and change, the emphasis on birth, sickness, aging and death. All of these are reminders, things to recollect when we notice our mind being once again seduced by some impossible promise. Religion is also as much caught up in this as anything else. The promise of heaven, the promise of eternal life, the promise of salvation, if you only believe the right things. It's just another way of uh, persuading us that things are not actually the way they are. And so what the Buddha is asking of us is something very, very difficult to actually, with complete unflinching honesty, to, to consider the state we are in having been born, having to die, in a world that is constantly slipping away, in a world that even if we, te- we, we, we temporarily achieve some well-being, the chances are that will change, that will fade, it will break down, other possibilities will then face us that have to be addressed. This is where this path begins. Now, when we sit in meditation and we simply pay attention to our breath and our body and what's happening in the 30 or 45 minutes we're seated here, that is a practice of dukkha parinya, fully knowing dukkha, fully looking at, feeling, experiencing the state we are in now. And it's difficult because it's so counterintuitive. The Buddha is saying, you want to be happy? Right. Look at your suffering. That doesn't seem to make sense. Why should we start there? He says also after his experience in uh, Bodhagaya, beneath the tree... He says, this Dhamma goes against the stream. What I'm teaching goes against what one kind of expects of a spiritual teacher. It seems to point in the opposite direction to what we think it should. Instead of pointing us towards you know, infinite consciousness and bliss, it points us towards the breath coming in and out of the nostrils. It points us towards walking back and forth. It points us towards being more attentive when we go to the bathroom. That's not what one might expect. The Buddha turns our attention quite ruthlessly onto the the, the specific conditions of our life. 
and noticing that they are anicca, dukkha, anatta. They are transient, they are dukkha, and they are also not essentially me or mine. They're simply the stuff of life, the bubbling of thoughts, the passing of the wind and the clouds. So this practice of fully knowing dukkha is basically about acquiring a totally different perspective on life, coming at our existence not from the habits of wanting to get this, trying to get rid of that, seeking to constantly affirm and endorse my, my specialness, but going to another perspective altogether and looking at the condition we are in, the dukkha we are in. And of course, as we do that, we realize that this dukkha is not just my problem. It's not just a characteristic of of Stephen's life. As we reflect more on this, the fully knowing of dukkha leads us to another relationship to life on earth, to the world, to the suffering in the world. And again, we don't have to look very far, we just have to open the newspaper or switch on the radio. And there are people starving, there are people being murdered, there are wars being fought, there is environmental uh, crisis looming. But do we fully know that? This is the question. And that's why I think the the important word is the adverb fully. Of course, we know all this stuff, but do we really know it? Has it impacted us to a point where we're actually going to change the way we live? And that is basically what the Buddha is asking Can we know our lives and the lives of others in all of their beauty, in all of their tragedy, in a way that we will live from that kind of awareness, an awareness which is rooted in wisdom, in empathy, in compassion, that is sensitized to the pain of the world and live our lives from that perspective? And again, we might aspire to that. In our better moments, we might even do it. But we're probably also aware of how easily we slip back into the consolation of familiar habits. Now, I think once one gets the task implied in the first truth the rest of these truths follow quite, quite logically, quite organically. If we really saw and experienced ourselves from this perspective of, of dukkha, our behavior would then begin to change. We wouldn't do the same kind of things we habitually do. It would somehow undermine the whole a strategy 
of life being about getting what I want and getting rid of what I don't like, which is what the Buddha calls craving. Sometimes this is translated as desire. This is a mistake. Craving is at the root of both desire and hatred. When we crave to get something with the idea that that will satisfy us in a permanent way, or if we crave to get rid of something, thinking that by doing so then we'll achieve some kind of lasting satisfaction, both are forms of craving. Uh, Attachment and hatred are both rooted in craving. So craving is the, is the primary uh, instinct or drive that leads us into getting and getting rid of. But if we come from another perspective, if we come from a perspective in which we experience dukkha, we experience impermanence, conditionality, then that whole a way of life will begin to lose its foundations. Craving will begin to fall away. We don't have to somehow get rid of it. As we saw yesterday, that may not even be entirely possible. Craving is a very deep instinct in human beings. <clears throat> but we may be able to find a freedom whereby it no longer gains any purchase any hold on our lives or it gains less and less of a hold to be realistic. So by fully knowing, fully knowing dukkha, this is the condition that leads to the dropping away of that selfish, egotistic, clinging and grasping, hating and fearing. So to let go does not mean that we forcibly reject or deny something within ourselves, but we, but we establish a, a perspective on life in which such behavior loses its footing. Like that bird. <laughs> and then, of course, once this craving behavior, this style of life begins to to drop off, then that is the condition for its stopping. And that's the third truth, the stopping of craving. Or as the Buddha says, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, or more precisely, freedom and independence from it like the freedom and independence from Mara, even though Mara's always going to be around. In other words, this strategy, this way of life, leads to a kind of freedom in which we're no longer dictated in our thoughts, in our words, in our acts, by this selfish clutching and grasping at things. That's what... Nirvana means, Nibbana, Nirvana, means the blowing out of grasping, of craving. The experiencing 
the possibility, the real possibility, of living a life which is unconditioned by those instincts and drives. And it's in such freedom that the possibility of a path, a different way of life, opens up. And it's at that point that we enter the stream, as the Buddha puts it. When he's asked, what is the stream? And again, there's a... I've got a quote here somewhere. Um, This is the Buddha speaking. And he's speaking to his disciple, Sariputta. He says, the stream, the stream. What now, Sariputta, is the stream? And Sariputta replies... The Noble Eightfold Path, that is the stream, that is appropriate, seeing, thinking, speaking, acting and so on. So uh, this experience of so-called letting go of craving, experiencing those moments of stopping, opens up the possibility of a new way of being in this world a way of being in this world in which we are no longer driven by those old habits, or let's say we're driven by them less and less, in such a way that we begin to carve out another kind of path in this world. Now the metaphor of path is a very, um, a, a very, very basic one in, in pretty much all Uh, spiritual, religious, philosophical traditions. And it's useful to think of a path not so much as something that is laid out on the ground, as it were, (coughs) but to recognize that a path, the Eightfold Path, is actually a space. It's a gap. When we think of a path, let's say running through a field over there, we see it as a brown line uh, imposed on a green ground. Or we think of a road as tarmac laid across the landscape. But in the Buddha's time in particular, a path was a very fragile thing. A path was was a space. It was a gap. If you go to the path in the field and you look at it, you get down on your hands and your knees, you'll notice that actually what the path is, it's just that, that place in the field where there's no grass, or there's no bushes, or there's no rocks. It's a gap, there's nothing there. A path is quite literally an emptiness. And when we come to the philosophy of Nagarjuna, who's one of the great thinkers in Buddhist tradition, he quite explicitly says that emptiness is the middle path. Emptiness is the middle path. And the middle path is also conditioned arising. These three terms actually are different ways of talking about the same thing. That when a path opens up in our lives, a certain freedom to move without obstacle or impediment opens up. A path serves as a path only as long as there's not a tree 
lying across it. Or a boulder fallen on it, where we suddenly come up short and have to stop. The word for the devil in um, Greek, diabolos, literally means something which is thrown across a path. Um, The Hebrew word uh, Satan means uh, the one who blocks or obstructs the path. So the eightfold, the, the opposite, the, the, the counter figure or the counter image to Mara is not so much the Buddha, but actually the path, the eightfold path. A path is a space that allows you freedom of movement. And this, I think, is what characterizes the whole way the Buddha structures the four truths. He presents them as a process, as a series of tasks, of actions that we recognize, perform, try to complete, that leads to another action and another, which leads to the Eightfold Path. What he's describing is a movement, uh, a living process that occurs over time. His awakening is not to some kind of static, atemporal, timeless reality. In fact, the very opposite. He wants people to wake up to their path in life, a path that is founded on a deeper sense of our human condition and an appropriate response to it, one that doesn't just keep repeating the same behaviours that causes anguish and grief but leads us to a life in which we flourish more fully in our thoughts, in our acts, in our work, everything. Now this in in a way might sound different to how Buddhism is sometimes presented but we have to remember that this is going back to the source text, the first sermon. It's strange in a way that um, very few Buddhist traditions even mention this business of knowing suffering, letting go of craving as a sequence. It's somehow forgotten, even in the Pali tradition. And yet what it points to is something very much alive. It's about living in this world um, and constantly moving on. So that when we get to the end of the Eightfold Path, which is mindfulness or recollection, focusing or concentration, that's not the end at all. Because again we have to ask, what are we mindful of? What do we concentrate on? And if we look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the practice of mindfulness... Where does the, what is the last thing we attend to after we've attended to the breath, the body, feelings, our mind? Then in the end, when we attend to Dhamma, the teaching, the phenomena if you wish, the, the text concludes with the recollection of the Four Noble Truths. <coughs> We keep coming back to the four truths. 
So our mindfulness, our concentration, turn us back to the truths themselves. In other words, to fully knowing dukkha, letting go of craving, experiencing moments of stopping, and opening up that path. It's, it's, a, it's an <clears throat> a continual feedback loop. It's not something we gain some final and permanent illumination from where we can then stop and become the local guru. <clears throat> it's an ongoing process. <clears throat> and since my voice is giving up, <clears throat> I'm going to stop here. And tomorrow we'll uh, continue and uh, we'll look at the kind of um, <clears throat> sense of the world that the Buddha presented in terms of these famous five aggregates, which again are mentioned as one way of understanding dukkha. In short, this psychophysical condition is dukkha. <clears throat> That's what we're going to look at tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.